0: Thanks for listening to the Leadership Habit Podcast. This week, our host, Jen DeWall, talks to Dr. Tyrone Holmes. Dr. Holmes is a professional speaker, consultant, and author of Making Diversity a Competitive Advantage. Enjoy this great conversation about being aware of unconscious bias in leadership and how to make diversity a competitive advantage in your organization. Hi, everyone. It is Jen DeWall, and I am so excited to interview Dr. Tyrone Holmes. Tyrone, thank you so much for joining us today on The Leadership Habit. We are so happy to have you.
1: It is my great pleasure, thank you for having me.
0: So today we're, gonna, we're going to talk about the topic of diversity and inclusion, right? This is something that I think we see more and more in the news, we know that it's an area of importance, but for those people that may not be familiar with diversity and inclusion, they may be outside of our space of where we live and play, How do you describe what diversity and inclusion is, Tyrone?
1: That's a great question. And if you ask different, quote unquote, diversity experts, they might give you some different answers, but I want to focus on one that's grounded in our ability to connect with each other as human beings. And when I think of diversity, I think of it in a broad way. I think of the, the ways that we can be different and we can be different in a lot of ways. We could be different based on a position we hold in an organization. We could be different based on our hierarchy in that organization. We could be different based on our race. We could be different based on our gender. We could be different based on our age. We can be different based on our socioeconomic status. We can be different based on our physical appearance or physical characteristics. We could be different based on physical abilities or disabilities. And when I think about diversity, I think about creating opportunities for people with those differences to come together in ways that will allow the individual and the organization to be successful and, and allow people to be effective in what it is that they're doing, uh, whatever it may, it may be that they're doing in their jobs. And so I tend to think of diversity and inclusion as steps that we take that create opportunities for people who are both culturally similar as well as those who are culturally different to connect with one another, to build powerful relationships, to build powerful connections, to engage each other in ways that will be of benefit to both the people as well as the organization and to do anything we can to create the situation and circumstances that will allow that to happen.
0: I love the purpose of diversity and inclusion, to connect, to unite people, and to have them come together to be able to maybe seek to understand, seek to learn, seek to connect, and just see each other despite our differences. Why does diversity and inclusion matter? For an organization? Why does it matter to have diversity? I know that that sounds like probably a silly question. It seems obvious, but why does it matter?
1: The first thing I would say is that diversity isn't necessarily a goal, but it's there already. In most organizations, particularly if you think about diversity in a broad way, looking at some of the dimensions that I mentioned a moment ago, The reality is is that we have diverse organizations. We have organizations that have different genders and have people of different sexual orientations and have people of different races and ethnicities and religions and political affiliations and things of that nature. And so we're already diverse. The potential problem is we don't always engage each other as effectively as possible. We don't always connect as effectively as possible. We don't always interact as effectively as possible. And Diversity and inclusion becomes important for at least one reason, that being that we need to create the opportunities that people, uh, or we need to create opportunities for people to engage each other and to interact with each other and to connect with each other and to operate effectively in teams and work groups in ways that allow them to be successful, and in ways that allow them to do their work efficiently, to do it effectively, to allow teams to work together efficiently and effectively. And when we do that, when we facilitate the circumstances that allow that diversity that is already inherent in our organization to come together effectively, the organization is going to function more effectively and it's going to to operate uh, with a higher level of efficiency and productivity. And so there are a number of reasons that, that we could talk about in terms of why diversity and inclusion and why do we want to have a focus on it. But I really like to emphasize because we're already diverse, And because we need to make sure we utilize that diversity in ways that are going to be a benefit and that we get a competitive advantage out of that diversity that we already have that's inherent to our organizations.
0: Competitive advantage. Yes. And there's also, I've heard people talk about it, you know, not only the competitive advantage of diversity and having different experiences and different individuals come together and the benefits you can see in terms of innovation, idea generation and But sometimes, you you know, some of the things that I've been reading is that diversity and inclusion, when we work for an organization that we feel really accepts us for who we are, values us for who we are, there are tremendous benefits to how we feel in terms of our own psychological safety and just feeling like we're in a place where people understand they're sensitive to the differences that we have and they appreciate respect and allow us to be who we are. And so, you know, there's that that beautiful benefit to the bottom line, but then there's this also amazing benefit to that individual. And I think people may forget that if you may not necessarily feel that you're diverse, or you may feel that you are diverse. It's that sometimes we just aren't bridging the gap to talk about the things that impact each of us. And we need to start those conversations. We need to have that openness in the workforce. Am I going too soft with diversity and inclusion? No,
1: not not (laughs) at all. And and you're absolutely right. And I'm gonna give you an example. One of the things that I emphasize when I do the work that I do, be it facilitating a workshop or, or just having a conversation with people is I emphasize the fact that in any given situation, we have far more in common than we have that are different. And I actually have an activity that I do in some of my workshops called 90 Second Introductions. And I'll tell you real quickly how it works. Yeah. What I do is I break the group in half and I have half the people stand on one side of the room, the other half stand on the other side of the room. And what I tell them to do is I say, find an individual that either you don't know at all or you don't know very well and pair up with that person. When everybody's in a pair, I ask them a question. I say, for the next 90 seconds, what I want you to do is I want you to talk about the things that you have in common. Talk about your similarities. I give 90 seconds to do that. Then when they're finished, I say, okay, for the next 90 seconds, I want you to talk about your differences. Talk about the things that are different. And when they've done that, I have everybody sit back down and I ask them a single question. And that is, what did you learn? And the number one response that I have gotten from people over the years doing this, and I've done it dozens of times, is that, we had far more in common than I reali- I would have ever realized. Our, we had more similarities and differences. It was harder to identify and talk about the differences because we had a lot more in common. And it was it's along that theme. And what I've learned over that time, and, and I think has become somewhat evident, is that the reality, whether we realize it or not, is that we always have more in common than we have that is different. And that a big part of what we ought to do and try to be doing in our organizations and communities is using those similarities to build a bridge across the differences and using those similarities for us to build a connection and to make a connection. And once we make that connection, once we create opportunities for people to interact with those they don't normally interact with, once we create opportunities for people to learn more about those they don't normally have a chance to learn about, once they make that connection, once they maybe get out of their comfort zone a little bit and start interacting with individuals that they haven't had a chance to interact with, they come to the realization of this person's a lot like me. We have a lot in common and we can interact and engage each other and be very, very successful together. And so that's a big part. That's a big theme when it comes to this whole conversation about diversity inclusion. Is that yes, we have differences. There are things that make us different, and those things can be extremely valuable because those differences can be utilized in ways that allow us to be more successful in terms of the work we're trying to accomplish. But we have so many things that we have in common that we can use to build that bridge and connect with one another. And to create environments like you were saying where people feel secure and where people feel good about themselves and good about the work they're doing and people feel good about the the their opportunity to engage and engage the their their coworkers and engage the leadership and engage other individuals in the organization to get their work done and so that's a big part C- creating the opportunities for people to do that is really what diversity and inclusion is all about
0: and if you want to be a successful organization that should be a primary focus is to offer that foundation or that platform for people to connect. You want them to collaborate. You want them to understand how each other you know, works, operates, so then they can work better together. Absolutely. What do you think holds people back or what challenges come up for organizations in creating a diverse and inclusive culture?
1: Actually, great question. And the question about holding people back I'm going to go right back to that 90 second introductions activity before we do that activity. What holds people back is so many people think of our differences as being greater than our similarities. And so many people think of uh, themselves in terms of maybe not having as much in common with a person who might be culturally different than they really do have in common, but they don't realize it. They haven't had that opportunity to connect. They haven't had that opportunity to interact. And that's why I say that one of the things that can be a great benefit in any organization or any community is to provide people with opportunities to interact with those they don't normally have a chance to interact with and learn more about those they don't normally have a chance to learn about. And the failure to do that, the lack of doing that, is is what often holds us back. Now, to be a little bit more specific, what we're talking about is this thing called affinity bias. And affinity bias, by definition, is the natural human tendency to gravitate toward those we perceive to be most like ourselves and therefore away from those we perceive to be less like ourselves. And because we do that, and human beings do that all the time, because of that, it sometimes limits our interaction. Because if we see person A, B, and C as people who are similar to ourselves, we're going to try to hang out with and interact with persons A, B, and C. Maybe persons D and E we think of as maybe not being so much similar to ourselves, so we're probably not going to take outward steps to connect with them. At least some people may not take outward steps to connect with them. But the reality is if that person took those outward steps to connect with persons or people D and E, guess what happens? They realize they have more in common. They realize that there are more similarities and differences, and they can utilize those similarities to begin to build those bridges. And so coming back to this whole notion of diversity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion, by way of an example, should be us doing a better job of helping that person who is comfortable connecting with people A, B, and C, to connect with those people DNA. And when we create those connections, when we create those opportunities to build relationships, all of a sudden people are interacting with each other much more effectively.
0: And they're likely happier, more productive people. Absolutely. And they're you know, you have this broadened perspective. It's it's amazing when we can actually, what we can actually learn from each other. Absolutely. So for those that may not understand what affinity bias, could it even be what affinity bias is? Could it even be something like, for my undergrad, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and so I'm a huge Badger fan. Mm-hmm. Could it even just be me trying to seek out fellow Badger fans that went absolutely. to the same university and to say like, hey, those people are the most like me. And so I know we're going to get along great.
1: Absolutely. That, that's a good example of affinity bias. And, and I want to make this point because I think it's important. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with trying to create a safe space for yourself. There's nothing wrong with trying to connect with people you see as being similar to yourself. But now let's take it back to the organization. And the question I ask people when I facilitate workshops on this topic is what happens when that affinity bias manifests itself in the workplace? What happens, for example, when it manifests itself in the recruitment process? What happens when it manifests itself in the interviewing process? What happens when it manifests itself in the selection process? What happens when it manifests itself in with the person who decides who gets promoted. The reality is that they will often fall back on that affinity bias, and they'll often focus on recruiting and interviewing and then ultimately selecting people who are they're comfortable with, who they perceive as being relatively similar, as, as opposed to people who are significantly different. Going back a minute to the example I gave you of persons A, B, and C, being someone you feel you can connect with, and then D and E maybe not being so easily connected with, in those cases, when we're talking about recruitment, we're talking about interview, interviewing, we're talking about selection, you might be more likely to hire persons A, B, and C than you would persons D and E because of that affinity bias. So there is fundamentally nothing wrong with people seeking comfort, seeking a safe space, seeking that similarity of familiarity, which is really what's manifest in affinity bias. In affinity bias. The problem becomes, how does that manifest itself in the workplace when it comes to getting the work done? In making decision makings, for example, around employment.
0: Right. That's, I mean, I love that example. I I used to work with an organization and we are a very large organization, but the feedback that I would always get from my friends and my husband when they would see us out or, you know, see my coworkers and myself is they would be like, you all look the same. Mm -hmm. You look exactly the same. I can pinpoint who works at your organization and who doesn't. And that's likely a strong example of affinity bias. And I never, Realize that until I got that feedback of how much alike it was to the point that I could then see people, you know, I could understand if we saw interns coming in, I would be able to not even know them, not even have an impact on whether they get picked, but I could probably guess who would get hired just based on everything that I noticed. And when you take that step back and really look at that, you're forced to ask yourself, how strong are your decisions if everyone is essentially? in some way operating out of a similar brain. How you know how innovative are you if you're doing that? I think in the beginning, yeah, it's like a safe space. We all connect, we share a lot of the same similarities, but when we really think about driving a business and we think about the processes that we're putting into place, how we're managing our organizational culture, well, there's a huge detriment
1: for us to all be the same. Absolutely, and I think you used a good example I'll I'll give you a a slightly different way of looking at it. Think about when affinity bias manifests itself in the recruitment and selection process or even just the recruitment process. Think about the large candidate pool of potential individuals who can come into your organization that is ultimately not even considered because they're not part of that group of individuals that you necessarily feel comfortable with. Right. And a lot of organizations, excuse me, a lot of organizations have processes that they utilize to bring people into the organization, or at least be considered to come into the organization, that can be somewhat exclusive because of that. That can be limiting in terms of who you're going to consider for positions within the organization. And part of diversity and inclusion is simply asking the question, can we expand our our pools, our candidate pools? Can we expand that group of individuals that you're considering, that you think might be a good fit, think might make a significant contribution to the organization. And the answer is almost always, yes, we can. There are other things that we could be doing to take a look at individuals who are going to be highly qualified and might bring some different perspectives and some different experiences and some different backgrounds that might make the problem-solving process operate more effectively and might make decisions that flow from that problem-solving process uh, ultimately be more effective decisions. And so. That's yet another example of how diversity and inclusion can be very, very effective at making organizations more more effective, ultimately, and and basically get some better bottom line results.
0: Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall, and I just wanted to drop in with a quick note. Are you looking for a proven program to improve your management team's communication skills and create happier and more productive employees? Are your leaders able to take your strategy and break it down effectively for their teams to achieve your vision? Are they able to inspire and motivate their employees to produce real results and meet daily demands? Great managers don't happen overnight. Partner with Crestcom to develop your team and obtain results. Whether you are looking to improve employee engagement and reduce turnover or cultivate a more inclusive culture. Our intensive leadership development program provides a diverse set of tools and skill sets for leaders to thrive in today's workforce. Contact us at Crestcom.com so we can help you develop your leaders. And now back to our podcast. How do you, what do leaders do to, you know, be able to broaden their perspective in the interviewing and recruiting process? I know that's not what we necessarily plan on talking about today, but you know, what, what can you do if you're a leader and you're now having this aha moment in your car? Like, Hey, maybe I do suffer from affinity bias, which is normal. As you said, it's something that many of us have. It's a natural thing to have, but we have to be aware of it because it can impact the quality of our decisions, the quality of our problem solving. What can you do as a leader to broaden your own ability to see candidates, to see people and to truly like create a more diverse team through your interviewing and recruitment process?
1: There are a variety of things you can do. We probably won't have time to go into all the different uh, aspects of of diversity recruiting. And and one of the things that I, I have done with a number of clients is talk about how do we go about recruiting and retaining a high quality, culturally diverse workforce. But here's the first step. And I always emphasize this as the first step. And I challenge organizations to answer this question. That is, If you see yourself as being relatively monocultural, as we were discussing where everybody looks alike, and you're basically from a fairly narrow range of individuals bringing people into the organization, then ask yourself this question, and that is, why would people outside of that monocultural group, why would they wanna work for this organization? Why might they be interested in this organization? Or perhaps you would reframe the question of, would they be interested in working for this organization? And I think that's the first step, because one of the things that I think we have to understand when it comes to any type of recruitment, and particularly diversity recruitment and trying to recruit and retain a high-quality, culturally diverse workforce, it starts with us. It starts with what do we have to offer? Do we have something of great value to offer to a high-quality, culturally diverse candidate pool? And so that's the first step. The second step is to start taking a look at what are you doing to bring people into the organization now? So for instance, some organizations use employee referral programs, and what they're doing is they're actually rewarding employees who are already uh, working for the organization for bringing in a, a successful candidate. And that's fine, but that's also how uh, affinity bias will significantly manifest itself. So are there some other things that you can do? Are you going to colleges to recruit? Are there some more diverse colleges that you can go to uh, to recruit at? For example, historically black colleges and universities, or Uh, 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 Colleges and universities that that have a high Latino populations and things of that nature are often possibilities in terms of doing uh, college recruiting. When you take a look at utilizing online uh, resources, are we utilizing online resources that cater to a diverse uh, uh, array of individuals? And I'm talking about, again, diversity in a broad way. It could be diversity based on gender, it could be based on race or ethnicity, it could be based on age, it could be based on particular skill sets. That's another thing to consider. Another big one that a lot of organizations find success is taking a look at professional associations that cater to specific cultural groups. So for example, just picking this right off the top of my head, uh, um, a particular professional association that might cater to women leaders in sales. Maybe that's what they focus on is women in leadership who are sales focused. If you need to hire salespeople for your organization and you wanna increase the gender diversity in your organization, that might be a professional association you want to build some interaction with and start uh, identifying individuals from that those prof- that professional association that might be a good fit for your organization. So those are, those are just a few, right. but really it requires, if we can kind of summarize this element, two things that I always encourage people to think about. One, start by looking within, are we an organization that will really cater effectively and create environments Uh, that that will serve effectively a diverse array of people and if not then the first step in the process might be to identify what do we need to do differently and then the second step is what do we need to do differently in terms of how we're reaching out and connecting with different candidate pools are there ways of actually making sure we connect with more diverse candidate pools that have the people that have the qualifications and have the experience that we're looking for and the answer is almost always yes you can do that
0: i love that you gave our listeners just a lot of things to consider and a lot of great tips on how they can start to think about this differently. I Thank you so much for sharing that. And I know that I went on a little bit of a tangent, but you know, you have to go where the wind takes you. But I do want to talk about your book, which is Making Diversity a Competitive Advantage and... If you could, for our listeners, just tell us a little bit about what your book is about. And I know that we're going to go through and talk about some of the ways that we can improve communication. And, and this is communication, I believe, in how you wrote it within our organizations, within our friendships, within the new people that we met. But how can we truly work together, change our communication styles so we can truly make diversity a competitive advantage? So what was your inspiration for that book?
1: Actually, I love the question because it really gets at why i do this work and i'll take a step back just in terms of why i do this work and that is and i'm not telling you or any of your listeners what they don't already know but we live in a society where we do not always get along very effectively across our cultural differences yeah we have a lot of issues when it comes to interpersonal interaction interpersonal communication we have Issues and instances of workplace incivility, quite a few of them, that can include things like bullying, that can include things like insults and things uh, such as nasty emails and tweets and all that kind of stuff. We live in a society where we can and should be getting along much more effectively with one another. Now, the reality is that we're not always going to agree, and that's okay. Right. We're not always going to get along in terms of, I want to hang out with you and you want to hang out with me. That's perfectly okay, too. But we should be able to do that without being mean to one another. We should be able to do that without being hurtful to one another. We should be able to do that without being destructive to one another. Yet we live in a society that increasingly, that's exactly what we're doing. And we're increasingly looking at people who are not in agreement with us, who are not part of our group or part of our tribe, quote unquote, as being the enemy, and as being someone that should be destroyed or someone that has to be torn down or someone that has to be cast aside, so to speak. And my work for a while and for the rest of my life is going to be, what can we do to start tamping that down? to start helping people realize that it's perfectly okay if we don't get along, it's perfectly okay if we don't agree, but we can do so in ways that are not disagreeable. We can do so in ways that can be perhaps enlightening to one another. And so maybe we never agree, but at least we better understand where each other are coming from and we can just agree to disagree and still connect whenever we have to within the workplace or within the community in a, in a peaceful and charitable manner. And I don't always see that. I mean, we see it sometimes. It's not like everybody's at each other's throat all the time. But but the reality is that we see negative outcomes and displays of behavior far far more than I think we should. And so that was my long-winded way of saying that I wrote this book as just one step in a process of helping people develop the skills, develop the knowledge, develop the understanding, developing the self-awareness necessary to connect across cultural differences more effectively. To communicate more effectively, to build more powerful relationships, to build more effective connections, to reduce conflict or at least reduce the likelihood of conflict. And even if conflict occurs and there's going to always be conflict. Always conflict.
0: Humans, that's one thing that's very certain. There.
1: It's going to be, it's going to happen, but maybe we can deal with it a little bit more effectively. And so that was the purpose of the book is to give people a, a relatively short, easy to read, highly informational uh piece of information or or tool is probably a better word that's going to help them identify a tip, a tidbit, a resource that they can utilize to connect more effectively, to communicate more effectively, to listen more effectively, to articulate their messages more effectively, and to ultimately connect with people who are both culturally similar as well as those who are culturally different in ways that will allow them to be as effective as as they possibly can be. I
0: love that. So right now what we're going to do is, is walk through a little bit of some of those tips that you offer people and to those that are listening, to, the, to our leaders that are listening, this is your opportunity to, you know, reach out and give that proverbial handshake and say, hey, I may not know you, or we may not always have the same idea, the same thought pattern, but you know what, we can still work together, we can still respect each other, we can still have peace. What we're going to talk about are some ways that we can overcome our differences to be more collaborative, to connect better, and to like foster also that respect that everyone deserves, regardless of our differences. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk about some of these tips. Great. So one of the tips in the book you talk about, which is, you know, an, a foundational leadership skill... But it's essential if you want to operate and create a more diverse and inclusive workspace and have a better conversation. And that was to acknowledge your weakness as a listener. Tell us what that means.
1: The reality is, as, is that we as human beings do not always listen as well as we should or as well as we ultimately can. And virtually all of us at one point or another is not a, an effective listener. Now, I, I see myself as a multicultural communication expert, a person who is very knowledgeable in how we can listen, articulate our messages, and connect with people who are both culturally similar as well as those who are culturally different more effectively. But the fact of the matter is that there are times, and my wife will attest to this, that I'm not the best listener. And so, <laughs> She's like, why are you telling people to listen when you don't do that? <laughs> exactly. So it's not like I'm trying to say I'm a great listener and you all need to become better listeners. I'm saying we all need to become better listeners. And... There's a number of reasons for that. I'll give you a real simple reason why we don't always listen as well. One, and I know everyone can relate to this, is that we live in a society that is now so fast-paced and now the expectation is that we move at that really, really high pace and we are inundated with so much information and we're always being asked to do something and do it uh, better and do it faster and do it longer, so to speak. That actually makes it, it, it puts a stress on us to if we're listening to somebody and we're engaged in a conversation to get it over as quickly as possible so we can get back to the work that we need to do. And so that's one reason why we don't listen as well as we can. Another that's kind of related is just the mechanics of listening. And the reality is that we can listen to words far more quickly than people can articulate those words. And so we might be sitting there and listening and what's in the back of our mind we're thinking is go faster, go faster, go faster. Okay, I need to know what this (laughs) is because I got something else I need to do. And so that gets in the way of listening. And there are a variety of reasons uh, why, why we don't. Mo- most Another one I think uh, people will be able to relate to is that most of us, when we're listening to somebody, we don't necessarily focus on what they're saying and focus on gaining an understanding of the words that are coming out of their mouth. We focus on what we're going to say as soon as they shut up. Right. And so when we're doing that, we're not going to listen as well either. And so one of the things that I make or points that I make in the book is, is to be honest with ourselves about our listening and to also be honest about when we can listen and when we cannot. And I try to emphasize to people that it's OK to say to someone, I want to give you my full attention, but I know I can't do it right now. Let's connect later on today when I've taken care of this issue I've got to take uh, care of. And we can spend a little bit more time talking about what it is that you need to talk about. And I think that's a very honest, very genuine way of actually improving your ability to listen by recognizing that in order to listen, the most important thing for you to do is to be in the here and now. There's actually a term utilized in counseling and in communication called immediacy. And immediacy is about the notion that you are in the here and the now with the person that you're engaging in that moment. You're with them, you're listening, you're paying attention, you're locked in on what they have to say, but we can't always be in a place to do that. And it's okay to say to somebody. I can't do that right now. I've got to do something else. Or I've got like one minute and it sounds like you can need more than one minute. So let's table this for a time when I can actually uh, provide uh, some time to listen and truly try to understand where you're coming from. And so that that's the point of, of that is that to be honest about our listening and to be okay with the idea that you can't always listen to somebody and, and hear what they have to say because there's other things going on. And the the honest and genuine thing is to simply say to them that let's talk about this at another time and I'll be able to give you my full attention.
0: Right. Don't get caught up in the fast pace of work. Recognize that if it does require a longer amount of time, just say so. People will be, I would much rather have someone say, Hey Jen, like I know you really need to talk, but I think this will take longer than the time that I have, or I'm very immersed in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about this at X time? I would much rather have that Mm -hmm. than someone just talking to me, but also staring at their computer monitor, like, you know, typing away or picking up their phone and then Mm -hmm. like shaking their head, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Feel like you're talking to a wall. I would much rather have someone just say, I can't do it right now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you an honest person because you're still moving that time to a better time that will work for you to be present or to practice immediacy.
1: Absolutely.
0: I feel like I'm learning words. Good. (laughs) So another tip that you offer is to be aware of the cultural influences of eye contact.
1: Yes. I'm gonna tell you a very quick story. And I tell the story when I facilitate a number of the workshops that I do, because it's very important not to misinterpret a lack of eye contact or someone giving you good consistent eye contact because there's a strong cultural influence on that. And the story I wanna use is that, it goes back to when I was a human resource manager for a company, and we had an administration manager that I worked with, great guy, and I enjoyed working with them. And we had a position that we had to hire as administration supervisor. And I remember when we got together to do a little brainstorming in terms of that position and recruiting for that position and the, the interviewing process and things of that nature. I'll never forget one of the things that he said to me while we, during that meeting. And we were talking about doing the one-on-one interviews and doing some group interviews and what we wanted to look at in terms of criteria and how we were gonna evaluate that criteria and all those kind of good things. And I'll never forget one of the things he said to me is he said that my first thing whenever somebody comes in for an interview is I, I greet them, I say, hello, I stick my hand out. I expect them to stick their hand out and shake my hand and they better give me a firm handshake while they're looking me directly in the eye. If they don't do that, I'm not gonna hire them. And he and I had to have a conversation about the cultural elements of what he said relative to a handshake and relative to direct eye contact. So for example, in the United States, particularly as it relates to US business culture, it's very common to have the expectation of fairly consistent eye contact. Now that can still manifest itself in different ways with different people. You might look at someone while you're talking to them. You might look away while you're talking to them and then look at them while they're talking to uh, you. You can handle it in different ways, but that's still fairly consistent eye contact. But in some other cultures and some other societies, that kind of eye eye contact would be very, very much, well, I'll say this way, would be less likely. So, for example, in some traditional Asian societies and in some traditional Latino societies, it would be uncommon to see somebody make that kind of direct eye contact. And one of the reasons is because individuals and not all, and it's important to say it doesn't apply to everybody. It applies to some individuals, perhaps, but, but not all individuals. But some individuals in those, those societies might think making direct eye contact, particularly with a person who was seen as being a leader in the organization, as being disrespectful. Oh. And so they wouldn't make direct eye contact simply because they think that would be disrespectful. And by looking away, they're trying to, uh, to be respectful toward them. And so it's important to understand that there are cultural influences when it comes to eye contact and, and, and other elements of, of nonverbal communication as you interact with people. But eye contact's a particularly important one and I, I'm always reminded of that and I always think about that that example of, with our administration uh manager and his whole notion of you better make eye contact with me and give me a firm handshake or you're not a good employee or not a good potential employee and it's like that's probably not the case
0: right well and it's something that I think we're taught I a few years back I remember um, listening to a speaker and she was giving advice to people, like career advice, right, about how to impress people, essentially how to build your personal brand. And one of the feedback that she gave to everyone is is make sure that you're giving eye, eye contact and also that you must have a firm handshake. And if someone gives you a limp or just a less strong handshake, then it's it's telling you something about them, which isn't true, right? This is just a conditioned response. It's also a cultural norm of one sect of a culture to what one person says, but we have to be mindful that other people do not have those same guidelines and it doesn't make our guideline
1: any more true
0: than anyone
1: else's. That's true, but let me say this. There are two sides of the coin. And on the one side, the side that I was talking about before, If you're making decisions about people, you should not take into consideration how strong their uh, handshake is. You should not take into consideration their level of eye contact. That's probably going to be somewhat problematic in terms of how relevant that is in determining whether they can do the job or not. But there's another side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is if I was actually giving someone career advice and talking to them about how they engage or how they behave in their mannerisms during an interview, I'd probably say the same thing, give a firm handshake and and maintain a a lot of eye contact. And the reason I would say that is because I know there are people who expect that. And so if I'm giving you, and we're on the other side of the coin now, if I'm talking to you about how you can most likely increase the chances you get hired for that job, I would probably say to do those things, even though I know it's invalid to utilize those as criteria in a decision-making process. Uh Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so you have to think about it from both perspectives. And so I can see where I I think the advice, the individual you're referring to, the advice that person gave is valid advice. That's a good idea to think about that because you're going to go into a circumstance where you may run into people. And I'd like to think there are fewer people uh, 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 that think that way now than maybe there were 20 or 30 years ago. But you may run into a circumstance where people still have that kind of mindset of, wow, this person didn't make eye contact. That says a lot about them. They weren't looking me directly in the eye. That says a lot about them. It says that they're shiftier, that they can't be trusted. And I know there's still people who think that way because I've listened to people in in training programs and workshops that I've facilitated who have said things like that. So I know that that mindset in in, in the 2017, 2018, 2019 timeframe. And so I know that kind of mindset still exists. But the reality is, is that, there's not a good there's no evidence that there is good predictive validity in someone's handshake or the extent to which they make eye contact when they first come into the interview room. And so you're not going to be able to determine whether that person is going to be a good employee based on that.
0: So you're telling me that if I master my handshake, you're not going to be able to predict that I'll be a CEO one day. No, Come on.
1: you're probably not. It's probably not a very good indicator whether that's likely going to happen.
0: Oh gosh, there are probably so many reasons of why I could never be, have the job of a CEO, but I've got the eye contact thing.
1: (laughs) I, I wanna say one other thing about the eye contact. Again, think about different sides of the coin. I do a fair amount of work with individuals who are professional speakers in terms of helping them become more effective on the stage, on the platform. And one of the things that I do emphasize that if you are speaking, if you're a teacher, if you are a leader at a meeting, if you are facilitating a workshop, if you're doing a speech, whatever it might be, that you do make consistent eye contact with your audience members. That is a very good idea. And if you've ever been in a workshop with me, uh, especially if it's maybe 50, 60 people, not a huge session, not not two or 300 people is a little bit more, more difficult, but if it's a relatively small session, you'll notice that I am looking at everybody in the eye. I try to, especially again, if it's 50 people or less, I try to look everybody in the eye during the course of that session because that's a very good way to say to the audience you care about them, that you care about them getting something of value from your presentation, and that you are a person that has an expertise that can be of value to them. It it also helps to increase your likability. And so, again, I'm not saying you're necessarily going to have a better message if you make consistent eye contact. You can make consistent eye contact and really be bad. I mean, you right, can right, look right. at everybody and people are like this person is great
0: awful. eye contact. You're really
1: not but... great. At all. That can happen. But I, I or conversely, you cannot make very good eye contact and have a tremendously powerful and effective message. I'm just saying that if you're gonna be a speaker, if you're gonna be a or not just a professional speaker, but if you're a leader facilitating a meeting for 10 people, you should be making eye contact with people because it's going to it's gonna help you be more effective in delivering your message love that
0: hey so we know like i like the you know just the feedback that it's a cultural norm and it's something that's not necessarily t- meant to be like thrown away there is still complete value in doing it but don't put all your stock in it Absolutely. just like you can't tell if i'm going to be a ceo from my handshake Absolutely. <laughs> hi everyone it's Jen all and i just wanted to drop in with a quick note do your managers know how to build an effective team Can they create an environment where teamwork is encouraged while setting appropriate benchmarks and delivering projects on time? Are they able to align expectations so their team works effectively toward common goals? You hired the right team. Now let us help you develop them. Crosscom offers a robust leadership development program that focuses on results. Each month, participants learn and apply key leadership skills and tools that will unite teams and drive organizational growth. We are serious about accountability, After each class, we help participants apply those leadership skills in group coaching sessions. Are you ready to take your leadership development to the next level? Contact us at Crestcom.com so we can help you develop your leaders. And now, back to our podcast. Another tip that you talk about is to recognize words, phrases, and behaviors that can have different meanings in different cultures. Yes. Why is that important? And what's an example of a word that might have a different meaning?
1: You know what? Let me think for a second. I've got to come up with something. Uh, Let me give an example. And I wish I had looked this up before we we came into this because I don't remember this exactly. But I do know that this is in the United States and I have the V. I'm putting two fingers up. And the V, it's like like, like a V of victory. This is seen as being the peace sign. Right. And there are other countries this is seen as being the peace sign. There are also countries in which this is seen as putting up the middle finger. It it has the same meaning as doing that. And so that's an example of that. Now, I think this is more important for people who probably travel abroad where you can see some dramatic differences in what particular gestures and what, what particular words mean. And I'm struggling to come up with a, with a specific example in terms of, of word meaning.
0: No, but I think but, that that even just the hand gesture yes. is a is a great example and not necessarily a word, but like it's it is a great example, because right. if you grow up in one culture, you might use it and be happy and jolly. And you <laughs> say that is a peace offering, if you will. But exactly. in that culture, they may interpret that as the complete opposite
1: of peace. Exactly. And so that, that's why that's important. If you find yourself in a circumstance where you're gonna be interacting with people who are have some significant cultural differences, particularly national differences, or if you find yourself working in a different country or just traveling in a different country, there may be words, there may be phrases, there may be gestures that have completely different meaning in one, one culture to the next. And so if you're gonna find yourself in that position, it's, it's important uh, to, to, to be understanding of how what we do here may not be how it's done different locations right
0: now another tip that you have is to always speak to others as equals why does that matter in terms of improving communication especially maybe if you're feeling like you are the boss you are the manager Mm -hmm. and this is your person that reports to you why the heck should you communicate to them as equals
1: you can communicate better if you communicate with uh, to people as equals than you could if you communicate to them as if you are uh, implicitly or explicitly saying you're higher than them or better than them, or you're not my equal and I'm above you. That alone creates noise in the interaction. And we haven't talked about this concept of noise. And let me take a a quick step back. I said earlier, I'm a professional speaker. I'm a professional speaker, I'm a coach, I'm a consultant. And I'm often asked what I speak on and what I do as a coach and a consultant. And I say sometimes partly tongue in cheek, but seriously too, that I help people deal with the noise in their lives. And noise by definition is anything that interferes with the accurate transmission of a message between a sender and a receiver. So you and I are having a conversation and there's some things you want to say to me and you want to make sure I understand. And there's some things I want to say to you and I want to make sure you understand. And noise is anything that interferes with that. There's four types of noise, internal, external, emotional, and cultural. Now let me bring this back to your question in terms of, Uh, Yeah, have creating a more egalitarian interaction when you're, you're communicating with someone one of the types of noise that can manifest itself when you're dealing with inequality in terms of the interaction maybe one person's higher than the other person in terms of that interaction is emotional noise it can increase anxiety it can increase stress and those are those are examples of emotional noise that interfere with our ability to connect with one another if you can create the circumstances that will indicate to people that you're on the same level that you're trying to have a conversation as equals, you will reduce that emotional noise. And you will, because of that, engage that person and communicate with them more effectively. Now, here's the thing. That can certainly happen intentionally. And sometimes there are circumstances in which people want to say, I'm in charge and you're not. In fact, I've heard people say, I'm in charge and you're not. Right. But there's sometimes that that happens unintentionally. And I'm going to give you an example. I was a college professor for four years, for, uh, for two years at Eastern, Michi- Eastern Michigan University, and then for four years at Wayne State University in Detroit. And I learned something very early on while I was at Eastern Michigan University, and I experienced it a little bit my first, really first few weeks at, at Wayne State University as well. And this is what I experienced. When I, as a new person, needed to call around to find out how something is done or find out what I needed to do to get from point A to point B, I'd call an office. And one of the things I learned very quickly is when I said, hello, this is Dr. Holmes, I got one level of treatment. On the other hand, if I said, hello, this is Tyrone Holmes, I got a different level of treatment. It wasn't a bad level of treatment, but I wasn't catered to as much as when I said, I'm Dr. Holmes. I would bet anything that the people on the other end of the line did not realize they were doing that did not realize that they were being more inviting, they were being more open, they were being more, for lack of a better word, professional. They weren't unprofessional when I said I'm Tyrone Holmes, but they were really more inviting and more helpful when I said, this is Dr. Holmes. Yeah, they're more attentive to you. Exactly. And it was a very interesting thing to learn. First of all, I learned to always call somebody and say, this is Dr. Holmes. I stopped saying this is Tyrone Holmes pretty quickly. But I use this as an example because, and again, I bet you this happened unintentionally on their part. I, I, I am betting that this was unconscious on their part. Is that their mindset, it wasn't even a mindset. What happened unconsciously is that when they heard Dr. Holmes, they realized, well, oh, this is a serious or, or a, a, a professor or a dean or an associate dean or somebody like that. So I need to give them one level of service. And unconsciously, when they were Tyrone Holmes, they heard, oh, this might be a student. So, okay, let me just take care of this and then get on to the next thing I needed to do. Right. And I don't think anybody ever did that intentionally. I genuinely don't believe that. But I think they did it unintentionally. And so, again, that was my long-winded way of saying, if we try to enter circumstances where we have a conscious focus on treating people as equals and a conscious focus on creating a more egalitarian interaction, I think we will engage people more effectively. We'll reduce noise and we'll be able to connect more effectively and really get people to want to connect with us more
0: right well and it no one wants to feel like they're being talked down to or not treated as equals because it's you know it's funny because i think the sender depending on how sophisticated sometimes they may talk whether this is intentional or not they may sometimes think that they conceal it really well but i think the receiver can always process any type of disparity in that relationship. I think it's yes. obvious. We can tell when someone respects us, just mm-hmm. as when you said, Dr. Tyrone Holmes, and not that they were disrespectful, but you can tell just based on the level mm-hmm. of treatment, how they process that and the decision they make. And, you know, we we see, we notice it. And so remember that just as much as you as an individual experience it, the people that you're talking to notice it too.
1: Absolutely, I'll give you a really quick example and I do this in some of the leadership training I do, or I say this in some of the leadership training I do, you can basically, just by the way you set up your interaction with someone, say to them that this is going to be an equal, egalitarian interaction, or do something a little bit different and say to them that I'm in charge, you listen. And it's going to be more of a one-way, I'm the boss, you're the employee type interaction. And this is what I say to people. It all comes down to where do you sit at your desk? If you want to create a more egalitarian circumstance situation, get out from behind your desk with two chairs and sit across from the person with nothing in between. That says to the person that we're going to have a conversation as equals and we're going to have some good dialogue, some good two-way communication about whatever the issue is. If you sit behind your desk, that says to the person, I'm in charge, you're not, this is going to be one more one-way communication. Even if that's not your intention, that's how it's going to be interpreted consciously and or unconsciously by the individual that you're interacting with. And it's going to not minimize, but it's going to reduce the potential quality of that interaction just by where you sit behind your desk versus versus in front of your desk with nothing between you and the person you're interacting with.
0: Oh, those are great things to be mindful of. I love that. Just the simple things that we can do to acknowledge that so we can ensure that the communication between ourselves and others It was the best way that it can. So we only have time to talk about a few more tips, but there are a few more that I wanted to ask you about. One particular that was hold town hall meetings. How in the heck is that going to improve our communication?
1: Actually, that's a very good way to do that. Now, typically, for those who don't know, a town hall meeting done in an organization usually is getting members of the organization together to talk about some issue that's relevant, probably to diversity and inclusion. And it could be any number of different topics that you might have. If there is a concern as it relates to something, uh, related to diversity and inclusion, perhaps you have a conversation about that. Uh, If there has been an incident in the organization, uh, a conflict that people know about and have been dancing around, maybe use a town hall meeting to address that. But there's a number of different things that you can do. But to more directly answer your question, the power of a town hall meeting is where it gives people a chance to come and talk about concerns they may have or talk about solutions to those concerns. And the key of what I just said is the solutions part, because town hall meetings can be problematic. They cannot work. They can fail. Oh, and I'm I've sure. Seen fail. <laughs> and they can fail when they just become times for people to come together to complain about stuff. And I'm not saying that shouldn't happen, There should be opportunities for people to articulate their concerns that they have without necessarily having to come up with a solution right then. But I have found that the best town hall meetings basically pose a problem. This is a problem we have. Let's talk about that problem. But we want you to bring some potential solutions and let's do some brainstorming around that. That can really have a twofold positive effect. The obvious positive effect is you do some brainstorming, perhaps identify some potential solutions to whatever that problem might be. But the second is, you usually get a diverse people to come together to have some conversation around it. And it goes back to one of the very first things I said at the beginning of this podcast. And, th- and that is, we, we want to create opportunities for people to engage those they don't normally have a chance to engage and learn more about those they don't have, normally have a chance to learn about. And that can be a forum in which that can happen. People can interact with those they don't normally have a chance to interact with. They can have conversations with people that they perhaps never met before that particular day or maybe they've seen but never had a chance to really interact with. And so that can really help the process of beginning to bring those barriers down, those barriers of difference, and allowing us to utilize some of our similarities, such as maybe a similarity around, we have a concern about this problem. Let's use that to have some good dialogue and build a bridge across our differences. And so town hall meetings can be a very effective way of doing that.
0: I've heard of some companies, some actually large Fortune 100 organizations that are now starting to actually have town hall meetings that discuss current events. It could be about race race relations, it could be about X, Y, and Z, but they're talking about the real life events that are impacting their employees. And they're generating that conversation to give them a voice, to acknowledge that Hey, even though they're at work, it doesn't mean their mind is completely there if something happens. Absolutely. We have to acknowledge that there are sensitive things that occur. And just because they happen outside of the workforce doesn't mean they they don't come in with that with an individual. And I, I just love the idea of these large corporations saying, you know what, we're, we're going to talk about this. We're not going to pretend that that stuff doesn't walk into our organization. We're not going to pretend that those differences don't exist. We're going to talk about those differences so we can create awareness around them. I think it's powerful.
1: And you just said something very important. And I think a lot of organizations fail to recognize this, is that people don't leave their baggage outside the door when they come to work. They bring it in with them. And the problems that they encounter in the world, they bring into them uh, with them into the workplace. And it's important for companies to acknowledge that. It's important for companies to recognize that if you have a current event or whatever it might be that can significantly impact a portion of your workforce, they're going to be significantly impacted outside of the workplace and they're gonna be significantly impacted inside the workplace. Perhaps to the extent that you need to address that. And I think a lot of organizations drop the ball and, and and basically have this expectation: leave your baggage on the on the steps of, of the the steps of the office, and you can pick it up on your way out, heading home <laughs> to work. And human beings don't work that way, right? We're we are
0: you know we're too sophisticated. Our mm-hmm. brain is too dynamic to expect that people can compartmentalize truly and live in a vacuum. Is it's. I just feel like there's. It's not going to happen. I mean, we we are not designed that way. We are. Our brains are too complex. We have. I think I heard today listening to a podcast. We have over fifty thousand. You know, thoughts in any given day. So to think that all fifty thousand of those revolve around work when we're at work is, you know, it's unrealistic.
1: Exactly. <laughs> like, Absolutely. And-
0: And it's, I mean, how we feel. I I love that you and I are having this conversation on diversity. And I hope that our leaders that are listening to this podcast really found opportunities that you shared with them of how they can truly design a more diverse and inclusive culture and how they can start improving their communication tips and how they transform their conversations with others. I know that we didn't get to talk about All of your tips, and I so wanted to talk about more, but our conversation was way too great to be able to do that. But for those of you listening, Tyrone offers over 70 tips to improve your communication to make diversity a competitive advantage. His title of his book is Making Diversity a Competitive Advantage. It's something that we all need to recognize. We all need to start generating those conversations and talking. To each other, getting to know more about each other because we we are so much stronger together than we are apart.
1: Absolutely.
0: So and then so the last question that we have to ask every one of our interviewers, and it's because we are named the Leadership Habit. So we like to ask everyone, "What is your leadership habit for success?" You're a professor, a former professor. You're an academic. You're a speaker. You're a coach. You're a consultant. How the heck do you keep up with it all? What's your leadership habit for success?
1: Actually, I have to say, and we haven't talked about this at all, which is fine, but I am also an avid cyclist. Oh. I am a level one USA cycling coach, which is the expert level. It's the highest level you can attain. Wow. I am a certified personal trainer through the American Council on Exercise. I am a level two Training Peaks certified coach. And while the coaching, that the, the athletic coaching is not the primary thing that I do, what we've been talking about is the primary thing that I do. I am an avid cyclist and exercise enthusiast. And now I'm going to answer your question. I think in order for leaders to, to self-actualize, to be as good as they can be, they have to practice passionate self-care. And my self-care manifests itself in cycling and exercising four to five days a week and making that a priority. I schedule everything else around my rides, around my strength training sessions, around things of that nature. That comes first, everything else comes second. And the reason I do that is because, this may surprise you, I used to weigh about 60 pounds more than I weigh right now. I've spent my entire life yo-yoing, gaining weight, losing weight, I literally have lost 40 pounds in a year and gained it back the next year. And it wasn't until 2005 when I lost weight and finally kept it off. And that's when I started cycling and started racing competitively. And I I don't race like I did before. I don't do that as much uh, in terms of cycling, but I still ride extensively. So I would say my leadership tip in terms of what leaders should be doing is take care of yourself. You can't take care of others. You can't take care of business if you don't take care of yourself.
0: I love it. Passionate self-care. Yes. Tyrone, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you, I enjoyed it as well.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. If you would like more information about Dr. Tyrone Holmes, or would like to buy a copy of his book, Making Diversity a Competitive Advantage, you can go to his website, drtyroneholmes.com or find the link in the show notes for this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate us on your favorite podcast streaming service.